Welcome to another episode of the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. We are sponsored by Filson and eFish and Foraged Markets. Today, we've got a special guest who happens to be a friend of mine. It is Chef Alan Burgo of Forager Chef. Alan and I have cooked together on a number of occasions, and we are both inveterate mushroom hunters. And so that is what we are going to talk about today. We're talking about preservation of mushrooms in all of the ways that you can do it. It's not just for the dehydrator. So we have both done all kinds of interesting ways to pickle and preserve and ferment and do all that kind of stuff for our mushrooms for the later seasons when there are no mushrooms. And I hope you enjoy the ride. Hey, Alan, welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. It is good to talk with you again. It has been been a couple of years actually since we've talked hasn't it or i mean i mean uh, i know we're texting all the time but this is the first time i think since we did our event together that we've actually shared a bit a little bit of time together yeah no i'm glad to be here it, it has been a couple of years the uh so what have you been up to i actually kind of want to know that before we get jump into the podcast because you're always doing you know i've i, I there's a few people out there who do not exactly what i do but but very similar and we're all doing really cool stuff and uh, if you're not familiar with Alan Burgo out there in Radioland, uh, he runs Forager Chef, and you are a professional. Are you still doing restaurant stuff, or are you just sort of doing it the way I do it, which is to say, when you feel like it? I do it when I feel like it, and it uh, it's working out very well for me. I mean, I spent 15 years in professional kitchens, and you know, I, I learned a lot, met a lot of awesome people. But it's limiting in, in in some ways. And you know, just your your quality of life is one of the biggest things. So I'm I'm happily doing my own thing. I'll do events here and there, teach classes. Uh, I've been doing more traveling, especially because COVID has kind of calmed down a little bit. That's been great. Kind of slowly putting together the mushroom book. I mean, that's a uh, that's exactly, exactly, exactly. Uh, what I discovered when I left the kitchen years ago, and I also left journalism years ago, and they're kind of the same profession. And one of the things that I really discovered about running Hunter Angler Gardener Cook is that so many chefs would read it in their their off time because you just don't have time. You don't have time to do research and development as a as a working chef. And it's so you, you know, they, it's been such a limiting, it was such a limiting deal where it's like you're cooking the same 15 dishes day in and day out. And then there's so much more to the world and that, you know, when you finally get a chance to break out and see it, it is so much cooler. And I'm really, if you guys have not seen Forager Chef, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, it's a, it's a phenomenal website. Yeah. And I was, I was kind of lucky because the places I worked, I mean, when I was with Lenny, uh, I think the first time I met you, you know, we would change. I was lucky because we would change the menu every single day and I was in control of what to, what went on the menu. So research and development, you know, I had a ton of that um, and something I'll always be grateful for. After that, I did get into some places where, yeah, the menu doesn't change all the time. And it's definitely a struggle. You know, you want to scratch that creative itch. When did you actually start Forager Chef? I think it's about eight years ago now. It's 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 uh, it's com- coming up on ten. Coming up on ten. Wow. Ten years. God, we've been in this a long bit, long time since you. So that means you started in twenty thirteen ish. Twenty thirteen. 
2014? Yes. Like before there were even mushroom groups on Facebook, there was a few message boards and that's like all there was. It's, it's crazy to think about how far it's come. Oh yeah. I mean now, and we're going to get into the the whole mushroom thing very quickly, but now, I mean, if you're looking for mushroom advice on Facebook, there are some hyper local Facebook groups like, you know, mushroom ID of Western Missouri or <laughs> mushroom ID of the, of the, of just the Sierra Nevada or, or whatever. And it's become very, very useful. Um, although I have to say that mushroom groups and <laughs> you tell me about your experience, but my experience with mushroom groups is there's, it's kind of the home of the aggressive nerd in the sense that there's some strange aggro feeling in, in mushroom groups that I've, I've not quite been able to figure out why of like people just getting angry about people asking simple questions or, or the idea that you could possibly identify a mushroom over the internet. And it's like, dude, it's a morel. Yeah. So I think what I see, I see them the plant group too, like the plant world too, because you kind of have the plant world and the mushroom world. But when you have, I mean, it seems like to me, when you have that little aspect of science involved in something, like it's not just cooking, it, you get you get people that, you know, have really strong opinions and everyone kind of wants to know everything. So yeah, it's, it is important to, to stay humble. And I get corrected regularly on stuff. You know, there's so much to learn. But I definitely can commiserate with you there. And I've gotten in plenty of, you know, heated Facebook conversations, too. It's uh, it's kind of par for the course. It, yeah, I get it. It just should not be. I've I've quit most of them because it's just they've gotten so, so aggro and I lurk. I lurk. I think lurking was probably your best bet if you're trying to get involved in, in IDing mushrooms. It's like, you know, just read, read and see what happens, because you'll learn a lot even just by by reading and looking because you're right uh i don't mind being corrected i just don't like being hey you're you know call you all kinds of names or or that you shouldn't even be on the internet or blah 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 and and yeah it's just people need to drink some decaf exactly so how long have you been actually picking mushrooms probably a long time i would imagine yeah a number of years before i started the website uh you know i would foraging was cheap it was something i could do as a broke wine cook and didn't cost me anything but what really got me excited about it was at heartland i could go out in the morning and pick mushrooms and put them on the menu that evening well that's pretty cool i mean especially because if it's uh you know if you if you picked enough for 10 covers that's you know that's great and if you picked enough for 20 covers it's even better but you're never going to pick enough for heartland's full menu are you Unless you put it as like kind of a garnish, because Heart, Heartland, for those of you out there, was a very, very well-known restaurant in the Twin Cities that that had like a ten-year run, didn't it? Yeah, it should should be a little bit longer than that, but yeah, it was it was a long run. And you know, there's so many items on the menu. You know, the mushrooms are only going on one course. I remember, I think they were, I think they call them now Lanmoa pseudo Paladerosius or something like that. It was like the most I'd ever picked. And I brought them in. They kind of smell like beef bullion when they're dried. They're crazy good. And those, you know, I pick like, you know, upwards of 20 pounds and we dry those out. We could keep them on. We could keep a sauce 
put them in a gloss or something. We keep them on many weeks. Is there a common and, name for that mushroom? Uh, bully and bowweed. Really? I've never even heard of this mushroom. Ta- ta- tell me about this because it's. Oh, they're, they are so cool. There's a ton of them here in the Midwest. There's Lanmoa palatirosius, and then like, uh, I'm messing up the name. It's like pseudo sensibilis or pseudo palatirosius. They're, they're both interchangeable, really. Uh, but they are like a hot, they have like a hot pink stem and kind of this like uh, light brown cap. They're, they can be kind of easy to mess up with uh, sensibilis, which can give some people GI upset, but they're definitely not as bright red as like bicolor bleeds. And I think I read on Mushroom Expert that, you know, they may have been like a cross between bicolors and another mushroom, but they're striking and crazy beautiful, like hot pink stem uh, that changes yellow. They stain crazy blue when you cut them. And then they smell like beef bully. Really, really mm. cool mushroom. That really cool. One of the few bullies we get here uh, in the Midwest that you know has a really strong bug resistance. You guys are lucky out there in the West Coast. This gets into our topic today, which is which is preservation. And one of the sad true facts of the not West, you know, the, the middle and the and the center and the south, and even Canada, is that both chanterelles and bullies in the rest of the country can be really super crazy buggy to the point where you can, I I remember picking a bunch of really pretty looking chanterelles in new England one year and getting ready to cook them. And so, you know, chanterelles, if you've worked with it, obviously you've worked with them, but if out there, if you're, if you've never worked with them, you tend to pull them apart rather than cut them. And so I pulled them apart and they were just absolutely riddled and I couldn't basically ruin the whole dish. And, and, so yeah, bugginess is going to be an issue we're going to talk to talk about. Like, what do you do when you come home and and they're well, obviously if they're if they look like you know some horror movie, you throw them out. But uh, but a lot of times we deal with with mushrooms that are semi buggy. Absolutely, and I mean it's it's definitely like a a spectrum of preference because I have friends who will. It, it's like the more you pick mushrooms, the more you kind of get used to it. And I have some friends that will eat mushrooms that are like on death's door you know it's a little bit open to personal preference i'm i kind of fall somewhere in the middle the kazu marzu of bolites yes <laughs> that's the maggot cheese of, of sardinia if you're not familiar with it out there. oh yes <laughs> quick shout out to one of our sponsors and that is filson Anybody who knows me knows that I wear Filson because Filson doesn't break. It isn't cheap, but neither should it be because it lasts forever. And one of the greatest things that I have of theirs is their Mackinac jacket. If you're not familiar with this jacket, it is a kind of like a, a heavy boiled wool overcoat that you can wear anywhere from kind of cold to really cold. And for over 120 years, Filson has been the most trusted outfitter for this kind of outdoor sport, trade, and adventure wear. And for almost as long, they've been making that Mackinac cruiser jacket. Originally patented way back in 1914, this jacket has become a legend in its own right, spanning generations as the hallmark of an outdoor coat. Made in the United States, it's heavyweight, all-wool body, has classic snap-flap pockets, and a full-width rear pocket that I use as a game vest when I go grouse hunting. This jacket has often been imitated and never been matched. 
They last forever. I've had mine for at least a decade, and I know some that have lasted for many decades. Shop at Filson.com for the new limited edition green and black plaid Mackinac jacket. I have the forest green, but the green and black plaid sounds every bit as cool. Thanks to Filson for helping to sponsor this show. Back to it. So let's just jump right into it. So mushrooms as most of us who are listening to this know are the ultimate in boom and bust. And they're there and then they're not. And then they may not be there for even more than a year because mushrooms fruit in conditions that they like. And those conditions are not always met in any given year. There are big years for mushrooms. There are terrible years for mushrooms. And there, and even if you have a pretty stable system where you're getting them year after year, they only show up in, when the times are right. So there are places where, sure, there's going to be, well, right now in Sacramento in January, it's the time of the bluet. And you know, bluet mushrooms are everywhere here right now. And anybody can pick them and they're, it's great. It's fantastic. And that'll last for about a month and then it'll go away. So no matter what you do when you're a mushroom hunter, Everything comes within its season, and then when that season's over, there is nothing you can do to bring back other fresh mushrooms except go to another place. So all of us who pick mushrooms have our ways to preserve them, and there's a lot of different ways to preserve them, and there are some nuances in the common ways that we're going to go into. So we might as well start with the obvious one that everybody does, and that's drying. Do you have kind of a, a playbook or, or a sets of playbooks on drying particular mushrooms in a particular way that has worked better than others? Because um, I know I do, but I'd like to hear yours. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I think the, the first thing to mention is like, obviously, I want to use a dehydrator. And one of the things that really kind of hurts me is a lot of these new dehydrators they have a timer and it's only, you know, a number of hours where I use, I have a couple of them, like the, the new, like LEM, the big metal one, but I have a harvest made that is an antique from the seventies back mm. when food dehydrating was kind of, uh, you know, it was kind of big and it doesn't have a timer. So I just put the mushrooms in and I walk away from it. And it is, the thing is a beast. It is the best dehydrator I've ever used. It's plastic and looks kind of cheap, but it's incredible. Uh, and you also want, you, you want a big dehydrator. These little, the little small ones, I just, I can't get into those. They're, they're, they're so, they're so small. It's like a Fisher Price dehydrator, you know? So just get a big one and you might want to get- An easy bake dehydrator. <laughs> yes, exactly. And with some of these bigger ones, you know, they might be made, those metal racks can have holes that are too big. So I get uh, silicone drying mats that are porous, or you could even use some that are solid, like silicone baking sheets, and then put the mushrooms on those. Because if you put like some small morels in there and dehydrate them, they could potentially like fall through the cracks. And then you're going to be like scraping them off the bottom of the hydrator, the dehydrator, along with all the worms that come out, uh, like with a, a bench knife at the end. Oh yeah. We're going to, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, I actually use the Excalibur nine tray. So it looks a lot like the harvest made. Um, I'm not paid by them. They're not a sponsor or anything, but they are based in Sacramento. So um, I think our, our general point is 
buy the biggest you can afford or what works for your own space because you're going to have a bonanza day at some point. Like Alan yeah. has, I have everybody listening here is like, I oh, remember that day we, we had 50 pounds of morels or whatever. Um, and your dehydrator is going to run for days. For days on end. Another thing I think is really important is that I think sometimes people will use dehydrating as a way to not clean their mushrooms. And there's just no way to get around that. Uh, and especially because dried mushrooms can be so cool as a powder and seasoning blends or ground up and made into purees. If you don't clean the mushrooms before you dry them, you're going to end up cleaning them or you're going to end up getting grit in your food. And dried dirt is much harder to get off than um, when the mushrooms are fresh. So I will actually, I will rinse the mushrooms if, if I need to. I'm not going to soak them at all. Uh, but I will rinse them to make sure they're clean and dry them out on towels. And then you put them into the dehydrator and they're going to, they're going to be just fine. Uh, if you soak them, they could kind of cook when they're in there. And that's kind of another thing is proper dehydration. You know, I want to shoot for like the high setting, 145 to 150 Fahrenheit. And if you'll know if your mushrooms are properly dehydrated because they're like ones that won't be will they'll like turn dark and shrink and they lose extra volume. I see this mostly with some of my kind of backwoods morel hunting friends here in Wisconsin, where they'll just set up, you know, they'll have tons of them. So they set up like uh, sawhorses and put uh, screens on it. And then they'll just take the mushrooms and lay them on there. And if you need, if you're going to do that, you need to have airflow or a fan blowing on them because I'll see people with jars full of all of these mushrooms that have rotted and then dry, hmm. you know? So, yeah. So keeping the temperature up and making sure that you are keeping airflow on them, I see it as pretty important. I actually take the opposite track. Um, airflow, I agree with you, of course, because we're both using dehydrators, but I have found that, well, yes. So let's, let's just sort of set this real clear. Airflow, we're totally in agreement. Uh, cleaning your mushrooms, totally in agreement for everything that you just said. However, I actually set my, my Excalibur down to like 100, 110 degrees. And I have found that the low temperature dehydration preserves the flavor of the mushroom better than high temperature, because especially with bolides, because the bolides tend to get a kind of a, a, an already cooked feeling to them uh, if you go up above 140. And some people like that. Like I have a friend, a guy named Jeff Canella, who's a very good mushroom hunter out on the coast of California. And he comes from an Italian family that has been doing it for generations. And that's what they do. And that's what they prefer. Uh, so I think there's a little bit of wiggle room in the temperature. But I think, and you tell me if you don't agree, but I think we can both agree that like 150 is about your top end. Because after that, you're generally, you're just roasting them. Yeah, you're, you're basically cooking them. My... My thing is, I mentioned that because, you know, we talked about timers on those dehydrators. Uh -huh. And I think partially I'm probably a little bit PTSD because one day at Heartland, we had one of those big ones with a timer on it. And I put a slew of slippery jacks ah. into, into it. And the timer, uh, I forgot to reset the timer and I did not have the temperature high enough. And when I opened that thing up, it was something from a horror story. 
Oh, like so they're, gross. They're, it's goo. They're, the worms are like, you know, they have a whole civilization in there. Uh, they're <laughs> dripping. They're dripping down. Oh, so gross. Oh, it's, it's yeah, yeah. So a side note on slippery jacks. Uh, I always peel the cap before I slice and dry. Do you? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So if you're out there, if you're not familiar with uh, the Suillis clan, the Suillis clan are like the the redheaded stepchildren of Bolites. They are Bolites. But they uh, they typically have a kind of a slimy top to them. But if you if you take your thumb and forefinger and like nip the edge, you can peel that whole thing off really super easy. And tell me if you found one that is okay fresh. But typically, <laughs> I find that the Suillis clan is vile fresh and is really really suited only for drying and then rehydrating. Yeah, they kind of taste like boogers. Uh, <laughs> so let's see. Chicken fat bolites taste like cat piss. Uh, I'm struggling to find one that I really like. Um, uh, what, what is the one? It's 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 really really common. Luteus, um, the luteus, and another one that looks really similar. They they can be okay, but again, I I peel them and I and I like to get them young. Um, yes. My friend, my friend Olina from Ukraine, she has. She's given me a couple jars of her like pickled slippery jacks, which which are which are good. Every single one is a button that has been peeled, and and they're okay when they're really small. If they are dry, or if they're kind of older at all, I always dry them. It just it improves the texture, and then you can you know after you rehydrate them, you can crisp those mushrooms up in a pan, and then they're actually they're going to taste decent. So that's an interesting thing. We just, I just interviewed my friend, Lori McCarthy, whom you may know. Um, and she's from Newfoundland and we spent an hour talking about salt fish. And one of the things that is very true and very similar with salt fish is rehydrated mushrooms. So there are a few rehydrated mushrooms. And the one that springs to mind is the fairy ring, which is, oh, it's like, something erasmus mariatis or something that's wrong yeah marasmus oriatus yes marasmus oriatus but it's the fairy ring is one of the very few that i have encountered that when you rehydrate it um it's it's damn near the same thing as what it was when you when you pick it but everything else is is ranges from disgusting and terrible like i i see no reason to ever dehydrate chicken of the woods or uh, chanterelles. I think they they lose everything that makes them nice when you dry those two particular mushrooms. But virtually every other mushroom, when you rehydrate it, is still quite good. But it just it's very different, and sometimes it's improved, like we were just talking about with the suillus. Yeah, I think part of that is the the flesh and like the thickness and the structure of the mushrooms. So yeah, uh, the woody polypores. I don't know really why people will dehydrate hen of the woods unless they're going to make you know stock from them they you can cook them in a crock pot all day long and chanterelles and hedgehogs too and they're never really going to be tender you're going to have to mince them up like super fine for them to be chewable uh, but mushrooms that have that are thin so like black trumpets uh craterellus yellow Yellowfoot, chanterelles yeah. yes those are really good for drying and you know they keep they keep a good texture morels are hollow uh so they they dry really really well. I dehydrate most of my morels, 
Uh, I also separate them by quality and size for different uses. I'm kind of I'm I'm kind of crazy about how I separate my morels. Well, Holly and I had an excellent, excellent, excellent morel season last year. Um, probably the best I, I may ever have. And and Holly hunted them even more than I did. So we uh we ended up with I don't know eight gallon bags of dried morels of very different kinds. We we because we start with the regular burn morels and then we proceed into the the greens and the grays. And those those later morels, which we were well, hell, I think Holly picked one into September when she was quail hunting. Um I mean, it might even been the beginning of October, which is unheard of. It's crazy. It's madness. Um, but we were picking well into August up in the very high elevations. And those morels are entirely, there's nothing like a mouse in the, in the world. And, and I was finding that if you didn't, I like to cut the calamari rings when I, when I dry morels. Some people like to cut them lengthwise. Um, I, I was finding that they were taking twice as long to dry because they're just so meaty. Yeah, I think those green morels, they have like a double wall. They do. And, yeah. and they're just so good. They're just, I mean, you're, you, <laughs> both of us do a lot of mushroom recipes on our websites. And you're, you're going to see lots of mushroom recipes on the site where it's just, the mushroom just happens to be morels because it was, you know, that kind of year. Yeah, with my morels, I like to dry them whole. Whole, okay. Do you, do you have a size limit for, for which ones you dry whole? Uh, no, I do. I separate them by size. So the like, okay, I don't always pick the very small morels, but last year I hit this big old grandpa tree, just a massive old elm. And there was hundreds of them and it was in a public spot. We, we had to take them, but I baby killer. Morel, the baby. Yes. I was a baby killer, but <laughs> the, I, but those, the small ones, they're the best for soup. Cause I really love cooking morels whole and you know, if I want to cut them into rings or strips or whatever, if they're whole, I just rehydrate them and then cut them into whatever shape that I want for whatever I want to do with them. I mean, you can stuff them. They're perfectly fine, you know, uh, dried. They, they, they stay tender. They're not going to be chewy like some of those other more firm species. But I usually keep them whole and they don't seem to take too long to dry. The older ones will definitely dry faster because they get thinner. Uh, but yeah, that's that's my preference. Hmm. Um, I I think we can definitely agree that morels dry super super well. Black trumpets, uh, yellowfoot chanterelles. I think agaricus dry really well um, because you're kind of not going for if you again it's like the saltfish analogy. If you dry it in agaricus and you rehydrate it, it's not going to be the same thing, but it's still good in its own way because I think they get more aromatic. Um, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, all of the boletes and then, of course, the soilis, the slippery jacks that we just talked about are slippery jacks are kind of like you have to dry them. Um, regular boletes, you can do lots of things and we'll get into that. Um, I think shanties are terrible. I think um, uh, we've talked about chickens. I have dried hens, but I you're right. The hens get kind of chewy, chewy as you as you rehydrate them um trying to think of some other i mean little hedgehogs dry okay I, I, were you talking about the big giant rapandum hedgehogs 
well, the giant ones we have here are album magnum, and they're mm. like the size of, they're like the size of a dinner plate. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, they're they're white, uh, like big white hedgehog, and you guys have them. I used to get them from Oregon once in a while, um, but yeah, we have uh, we have yeah we have the rapandum and then the, the giant giant ones, and I. I usually just like pickle those or something or just enjoy them fresh because I think they get a little bit chewy. You know, they're so closely related to chanterelles. I, yeah. Sometimes we would grind them up and, you know, put them in sauce or something. And they were always just a little chewy for me unless I like finely minced them. I think another surprising one that is really good dried is Matsutake. And because sometimes we'll get just mega flushes of Matsutake and they are my secret weapon in fish stock. I love them as an element in fish stock. That's a great idea. What are some of the, maybe the, because I'm my, most of my experience over the last damn near 20 years is Western. So what are some of the, the Midwestern and Eastern mushrooms that you've encountered that dry and well or dry poorly that I might not know about? Well, mostly I'd say like lots of different boletes. So like, uh, chrome-footed boletes, uh, any of the edible gyroporus that we have around here, uh, milk caps, our milk caps are really good, like the, I want to say it's, uh, uh, what is it, the voluminous, milky, uh, lactoflus volumus. Uh, I don't really dry, I, I really like to eat mine saffron milk caps fresh, but the milk caps, when you dry them, they almost make they make a mushroom stock. It tastes like chicken stock. Huh. Which, oh, like stupid. all, all lactarius that are edible? Ma or well, just many, many, many of them. Um, but the, the volumus specifically, I would, uh, uh, what's the other one? I'm drawing a blank on it. The but one yeah, I most... pick a lot is the, is the, the saffron milk cap. That's the lactarius deliciosus. Yeah. We have a couple varieties, of, uh, varieties of those. We have uh lactarius thionose and it's like a small one. It's the best saffron milk cap I've had, uh, but yeah, our saffron milk caps too. They make, it's almost like chicken stock. It's got this chickeny quality to it. I like it. Um, one other thing I'll mention real quick is that one good reason to dry mushrooms, like we talked about with slippery jacks, uh, you usually will dry all of them. Drying is a safeguard as well. And it functions as, you know, basically cooking the mushrooms. You're basically cooking them. So with like morels, some people are allergic to morels, uh, but if they have them dried, they can be okay. Individual sensitivities vary widely from person to person. With luxinums, uh, like we, I pick uh, luxinum orontiacum up here with our aspens mm -hmm. and those things. That's the only mushroom that's ever made me sick from undercooking it fresh. Interesting. If if I dehydrate them, it improves the flavor, it improves the texture, and then I can make it into, they turn black. The yes. color changes. Yeah, they turn black when you cut them. They turn like back to gray when you dry them. Then they turn black again when you dehydrate them. Uh, but I make them into this black mushroom puree and I make like a black Russian rye with them. It is crazy good. And as like an all-purpose seasoning, those are one of the best mushrooms that I pick around here. But I always dehydrate them because they can definitely make people sick if they're undercooked fresh. I'm glad you mentioned lexinums because lexinums are one of my favorite bow leads to go look for because they're very common in the West. And 
and in Alaska. And I spend time picking in both of those places. I was in Alaska this past August chasing ptarmigan. And we took a day off because the dogs were tired. And, you know, quite frankly, we were too. Uh, and it was like 80 trillion birch boletes everywhere. Like everywhere. You, you, you could not swing a dead cat without hitting six birch boletes. And and it was nuts. And so I, I picked them and I actually dried them in a, in a low oven because there wasn't a, a dehydrator where I was. And so, yeah. Oh, yeah. They turned they turned super dark and black. But they are them and the Aspen Boletes. And there's one other, there's another Aspen Bolete looking thing that's not an Aspen Bolete that I can't remember what the name of it. You probably do. Henny uh, Luxinum? Yeah, it's a Luxinum with a, with a pretty peachy colored cap that's not an Aspen Bolete. Oh, the, the, these ones are like pure yellow. You could mistake them oh, for, yeah. uh, for gold stock Boletes. Yeah, they're, they're super yellow. Uh, I only see those here in the Midwest and they don't have like, uh, they have a better taste than some of the other Luxinums and I'll, I'll actually eat some of those fresh. Um, but yeah, those are wonderful, kind of a little more of a mild flavor than the strong uh, Luxinums that turn black, but yeah, yeah. those are really good. And I don't see people picking those except in the Midwest. That's yeah, we've got a, we, our version of uh, the, our unique one is the Manzanita Boli. Oh, and cool. the, the Manzanita Boli it obviously grows as manzanita. It's a lexinum, but it's it's big. It's the biggest lexinum I think I've ever seen. Like it can be, you can get a perfect one that's a pound and a half. Yeah, they get big. Giant. So yeah, lexinums are really, that's a great, I'm glad we mentioned that one. The other one I forgot uh, before is candy caps. So candy cap is, um, it's another lactarius and it is unique to the Oregon and California coast. And it, it's okay fresh i mean it's fine but when you dry this particular mushroom it smells incredibly strongly of maple syrup and it's used in the dessert trade here in the, in california and oregon and it's it, it that that one is another one that is only good after being dried yeah and there's a there's a number of them it's kind of like a spectrum of candy cap flavor i just had a friend from france who sent me a bunch of lactarius helvis uh that are some people would call them a candy cap but they have like a curry note to them mm -hmm. and then we have uh lactarius uh god what is it so you have your there, own version a of a candy of cap there but they are not anywhere near as strong calling them a candy cap is misleading okay. uh, but they, but when you smell them it's it's it is similar and you can you can you can tell that they're related but if i have my choice i'm always ordering the west coast candy caps it's like matsutake i i got in an argument at one point i was wrong but i, <laughs> I got <into> an argument <laughs> like in 2011 uh with somebody in the midwest I'm like there are no matsutakes in the midwest and and this guy was like Absolutely, they're Matt's talkies in the Midwest. And like, you're super wrong. And I was wrong. So, because you found him, right? I've, yes, absolutely. And it is fascinating because, okay, there's a really good book. I should put a, a mention of this in the show notes. It's called the, uh, like the mushroom at the end of the world or something like that. And it's all about uh, Matsutake. But they talk about, and this is happening in Northern Minnesota. Basically, the Matsutake were always there, and they should be more closely related to the Scandinavian variety. They're super good. Uh, I like the flavor better than the West Coast variety, 
but they get bugs and they get a lot of bugs. Uh, but we are we have created Matsutake habitat without knowing it in northern Minnesota in the Midwest by planting these red pine plantations everywhere. And the mushrooms are now moving out of like their natural habitat and colonizing all of these red pine plantations. Huh. I got to tell you, the best Matsutake dish I ever had was in 2013 for my book tour for Duck Duck Goose. And I did a duck consomme in the cookbook. And, you know, all of us who are actual real cooks who kind of maybe either went to school or not didn't go to school, we all have a kind of a, a love-hate relationship with consomme. And I, I just, I have a pure love relationship for it. I think it's one of the most beautiful, understated things you can do in the kitchen. And so the chefs picked that up. And so there were consommes all over the book tour, all over the country that year. And the best one by far was at a place called um, the Hotel Donaldson in Fargo. And my friends, uh, uh, Nick and, and Ryan, the chefs there, they were co-chefs. They came up with a consomme where the it was a shallow bowl that was filled with paper thin shavings of matsutake. And then the, the waiters would, would go around the, the room and they would out of the, they bought special like, you know, coffee urn things like that. They're like coffee thermos things that you pour at the table, like in a diner. And they had bought special ones that didn't taste like coffee, of course. And, <laughs> and they poured this duck consomme over these masatake at the table. So that the consomme was piping hot and you got that rush of matsutake aroma. And that was it. That was a whole consomme. And, and because they had the restraint and they, these guys were like in their twenties at the time. I don't know how they had that kind of restraint. It's unusual for someone in their twenties to, to leave something off the plate. And, sure. and, but they did. And it's, it's, I still remember that dish. Yeah. There's something so satisfying about when you, when you really nail that, the clarification, it, it improves the flavor. Everything kind of gets concentrated. It it can be so so good, and I'm definitely going to be trying that. It's it's an amazing dish, and it, of course you could do it with a mushroom consomme if you wanted. Absolutely. Hey everybody! If you are interested in buying my cookbooks, I have three of them on my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That is at huntgathercook.com. You will get a 15% discount off the purchase of not only those cookbooks, but also any kind of other gear, swag, or apparel that we sell on the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook shop. You use the code HUNTGATHERTALK. That's HUNTGATHERTALK in all one word. And you will get 15% off your order of any of my cookbooks or of hoodies or shirts or stickers and that sort of thing. On the huntgathercook.com shop, you will see my cookbooks and you will see apparel and stickers and all that sort of thing. Use the code huntgathertalk and you will get 15% off. Thanks in advance for your support. Let's move on to the other main method that most people use for preserving mushrooms, which would be the, the old saute and freeze. Well, I was going to say pickling, but... Sure, we'll go there. We'll do pickling, but uh, but I think if you talk to mushroom hunters, like pot hunters, like people like you and me, who are not you know overly concerned with with you know Latin names, 
I think you will find that, especially, it could be a Western bias because of the chanterelle, because I think it's a generally known thing that dried chanterelles are bleh. So most people that I know, if they don't dry a mushroom, they will saute it and then freeze it and then vacuum seal it. And I'm pretty sure you could do that with anything, don't you? I mean, just about anything. You just have to, you have to make sure that they're cooked. Some mushrooms are okay raw, frozen raw. The, I think the biggest, yeah, the biggest thing to mention for me is, is it a mushroom species? It, the, everyone is so different. Uh, is it a mushroom that can be frozen raw and not absolutely taste like garbage when it is cooked? Uh, if you freeze a puffball raw, it's one of the worst smells that you will ever smell. Uh, same thing with all the heresium and a, a, a few others. Some of them can be frozen raw, like matsutake. You can. I was just going to say yes. the only one I have ever frozen raw was a matsi. Yeah, hens hens can work too, uh, but everyone is different, and you kind of have to play around and experiment. But generally speaking, the best way to keep the texture. I mean, I think we can agree is to cook them. I I won't put any color on them. I'm going to cook them in plenty of fat. Uh, Preferably a fat that's going to be firm when they're cooled down so that it doesn't make vacuum sealing a mess. And yeah, I mean, those are, they're basically just like eating fresh mushrooms when you beat them up. Yeah, I do that with shanties. I do that with agaricus a lot. Um, and I'm trying to think, because the problem is, uh, is I'm a hunter and, you know, my freezer's for dead, dead animals. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and so, you know, making space for mushrooms in the freezer is, is kind of a luxury for me. So I kind of restrict it to those mushrooms that are just not good any other way. Um, but a lot of people who have more space in their freezers, that's a great way to have, a, it's almost like a, a thaw and eat kind of deal where, uh, like I just did a chanterelle stuffing and I've done a chanterelle stuffing for years and years and years. And I finally got the opportunity to uh, to to redo the photo because it was an ancient photo that was terrible, and and so I got these chanterelles in the summertime, like most people get their chanterelles in the summertime, and I sautéed and froze them for the specific reason of making that that stuffing for the holidays. And when I thawed them out, they were perfectly fine in the stuffing, and a little different, a little little changed, but but I think it's probably the way to preserve the freshness or the, the fresh flavor of a particular mushroom, the easiest. One thing I will mention is that sometimes the vacuum sealers are too powerful. So I was at an event uh, that I won't mention specifically and people sometimes donate food uh, that they'll pick throughout the year. And someone had picked me like five pounds of very small chanterelle buttons and then cooked them and vacuum sealed them. I might as well have thrown these things in the garbage. Uh, the vacuum sealer was just too powerful and it just smashed them into flat pancakes. Oh, so wow. I, so, yeah, so I put the mushrooms in. Well, usually I take the buttons and I always, I always pickle my buttons because uh, I love the pickled buttons, but I'll put them into individual portion bags and then put them in a larger resealable vacuum bag so that there's like a little bit of air in there so they don't get smashed but that's it's kind of getting into minutia but that but don't freeze chanterelle buttons and vacuum seal them it'll smash them into pancakes yeah unless you have a 
variable pressure vacuum sealer, you know what you're doing. But yeah, yeah. that's an interesting tip. I guess so a Ziploc would probably be your best bet. Yeah, and those, those work good too. Just make sure they have plenty of fat on them so they don't get the freezer burn. Well, you mentioned pickling buttons and pickling chanterelles. Is that, that's literally the first time I've ever, or the first pickling mushroom thing I ever did was pickled chanterelles. Um, because very early on, you know, I didn't grow up picking chanterelles. Uh, it, it was not a, in my in my toolkit when I was a kid because uh, we didn't really have a lot in New Jersey where I grew up. And I do, I love them too. And again, you're right. You're 100% right. The little teeny ones, um, A, they're cute. B, in the pickling process, they get a little smaller. So they're even cuter. And in your part of the world, the buttons are going to, well, you probably going to be less buggy. I mean, in my experience, the, the the teeniest ones are the least buggy. They're definitely the least buggy in the West Coast. Um, but finding little ones in the West Coast is very difficult because we have those gigantic, um, like mega chanterelles. Yeah, all of yours are just huge. The the Californicus and the Formosus, they're just, they're mm -hmm. massive. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I've, I'm, I'm thinking of one I picked just last year. That was a double handful. It was one mushroom. So there's a, a lots of ways to pickle. Let's start with the easiest, which is to say, let's cook some mushrooms and some vinegar. Yeah. I think the, the biggest thing that separates my, the pickles that I like to make with most of them is I generally do not add any sugar. I don't know that I add sugar either. <laughs> Why, uh, why do you see people adding sugar? Uh, well, it's a lot of pickle recipes include sugar. And I don't, a lot of the pickle recipes I see, except like, you know, Eastern European ones, I don't see a lot of sugar in those. Um, but a lot of them include sugar. And I don't really understand that. Sometimes it can be okay. Like I was in Finland last summer picking mushrooms with this Finnish chef. And one of the things we're doing for this uh, photo and video shoot was his pickled chanterelles. And there was all this wild juniper we just picked. And he put a ton of sugar in his. The juniper made it okay. So, and, and it was his recipe. I wanted to give him a shot. They were, they were all right. But generally speaking, I don't put sugar in mine. I prefer them very savory, lots of thyme, lots of garlic. Uh, I like the oil based ones too. But I generally don't put sugar. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll put sugar in a cucumber pickle sometimes, but not in a not in a mushroom. Are there mushrooms that you? I mean, we've talked about chanterelles, but are there mushrooms that with a straight up vinegar pickle? That's, we're going to move into other pickles in a minute, but but with a straight up vinegar pickle, hedgehogs and mushroom and uh, and, and shanties are the two that I would go to to think about pickling first. What are some of your go tos other than chanterelles? Yeah, I mean, chanterelles are definitely my go-to. If I get really young porcini buttons, which is which is possible here, those can be really nice like that. Um, sometimes I'll dry them like a, just a little bit first because uh, they can get a little bit soft. Uh, chicken of the woods can make really, really good pickles. But again, you got to make sure that you get really young ones. And when you get really young ones, they are like so soft. They're like eating a little oyster. Hmm. Speaking yeah, of which, have you ever, I mean, I'm sure you've worked with aborted entolomas before. Um, is there any other, is there any other, anything you do to, to, to preserve them other than eat them fresh? I've only ever eaten 
what is it what's their common name like sheep's nose or something like that um oh there there's a whole bunch of them the, i think it's like the hunter's heart the ground prune aborta antiloma shrimp of the woods i I've, I've never seen them preserved or even heard of them preserved i only ever cooked them fresh yeah so they need to be like caramelized and or cooked in something that's really flavorful like i cook a like fra diavolo like you know bury them in a bunch of spicy tomato sauce uh, but I don't really, I'm not going to saute and freeze those freeze drying them is, uh, and that's, that's something to mention too. It's not as approachable as I would like it to be, but those are like eating fresh mushrooms with just about any mushroom that I have tasted. Uh, you, if you did a side-by-side taste test with those or with morels, people would probably not be able to tell the difference. A freeze drying, huh? I actually Absolutely. talked to my uh, my friend Shannon Waters, runs Gastronome Meals, and and she that's her job. That's what she does. She creates freeze dried meals for like the backcountry or hiking or traveling. And uh, I'm gonna have to bring her some fresh mushrooms because she's got a commercial freeze dryer. But no, you but, have yeah, the truck. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's like uh, this is what we covered in the freeze drying episode was that freeze dryers are a minimum of two and a half thousand dollars and. So yeah, you're 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 right about not being as approachable. Absolutely. Agaricus, little button agaricus are excellent in a vinegar pickle as well. Do you, yeah, I, mean, I don't I don't get I don't get a ton a ton of them. Oh, um, okay. Uh milk milk caps. I, I do really like milk cap pickles. And usually I blanch those. Um I'm, I might blanch them to kind of calm down the mucilage a little bit. Uh, but those and honey mushrooms, I, I like pickle too. Oh yeah, honey mushrooms. Honey mushroom buttons are are like, in really the cap and just a bit of the stem. Those are excellent pickles as well. But I'll boil them in the vinegar because honey's as, you know, honey's have to be cooked pretty well. Oh yeah. The, you had met, we've mentioned milk caps and the only thing I really love, love, love doing with milk caps, and I'm going to have to try the, the stock because I like the idea of a milk cap chicken stock, um, but I haven't tried that. Is I uh, I've got a recipe for Polish salted mushrooms, and which is different from the Russian style because the Russians don't blanch them apparently. Um, and so with if you do this with saffron milk caps, you boil them in salty, salty, salty water for like a minute, just to, it's like blanching. So set, and it sets that color, and then you arrange the caps. Uh, in alternating layers of of mushrooms and salt and and some spices, and then you press them down to make a brine. So essentially, you're making like sauerkraut but with mushrooms, and they're amazing. They're salty, but they're so good with like akavit or or really icy vodka, and it just they're so good. And this kind of fermented salted mushroom thing is a little bit more advanced in terms of preserving mushrooms, but it's hundred percent worth it. Yeah, those are fun. I know a, a really good mushroom book for people that want a fun mushroom book is a Chad Hyatt's uh, Mushroom Hunter's Kitchen, and I think he makes hummus out of salted, like salted white milk caps, like hmm. the spicy, like the spicy hot ones. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, but he, he's super talented. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably someone who cares about where their food comes from and is excited to explore wild and unique foods. Foraged Market helps you do just that. 
Forage Market is an online marketplace full of unique ingredients and food products that ship directly from foragers and farmers right to your door. Whether you're looking for interesting ingredients or looking to grow your own food business, you need to check out Forage Market. Because of their ever-growing list of vendors, they have an awesome selection of ingredients and products. From pickled milkweed pods to ramp kimchi to dried wild mushrooms to craft pantry items and much more. Forage Market is sure to have something interesting for you. In addition to incredible food, Forage helps people connect. Forage.com has awesome features like direct messaging, so you can chat with the small business owners on Forage to explore new things and learn more about what's on your dinner plate. Head over to www.foraged.com and help put power back in the hands of independent food producers. Do you ever do any fermenting of mushrooms? So I, I do like those, those heavily salted like milk caps that you mentioned. I think I see people talking about mushroom fermentation like it's some new amazing thing. And with those, with the salted saffron milk caps that you mentioned, there's so much salt in there that it is not like the fermentation is way slower. If you try to ferment mushrooms, just like sauerkraut, again, I mean, every mushroom is so unique. You can make some of the most inedible things. Uh, one of the worst things I've ever tasted was. That's because uh, how we know. <laughs> was, I think it was chanterelles that I tried to ferment and they like turned into alcohol. I was doing it wrong, uh, but a lot of mushrooms get like soggy or they get bitter. Uh, so if I'm gonna ferment them with a lower concentration of salt, like three, two or 3% by weight or like a 3% brine, I'm not gonna do it for very long. And for, I would say for the vast majority of mushroom hunters, I would not suggest that they try it, uh, except maybe with those salted saffron milk caps or with a couple specific uh, varieties. Amanitas, actually, again, this is not gonna be for everyone, but there's, uh, David Aurora wrote about the localized tradition uh, in Japan where they harvest muscaria and then they boil it and then they ferment it in brine and put it in miso soup. And the Amanitas don't get, they don't get soft and mushy, they don't get bitter. It is a really, really cool miso soup. And if, if you pick Amanitas, if you can identify them, uh, that is actually a cool way to treat them. But, you know, besides a few of the like the fermented sauces from the Noma book that require equipment and, you know, advanced fermentation knowledge, I really don't suggest people try experimenting with mushrooms too much. Yeah, I think I would agree. Although between you and me, I mean, you and I have both been doing this for a while. I made a um, a cooked morel and uh, black scarlet runner beans, so an ayacote bean. I made a miso out of that, and it's kind of amazing. And but it, I mean, that's a that's a miso project with koji, and it requires eight months. And and I mean, it's one of these things where. It's amazing, but it, it requires a little bit of sorcery. Yeah, and those are a little bit different. Like you're not going to be eating the piece of mushroom fresh. Like if you if you ferment a shiitake in brine, uh, and it's better to vacuum seal them because they're really prone to mold if you do it in brine. If you ferment a shiitake for like a week, they're going to like be mush in your fingers. Um, mm, but mush. if you puree that in, if you puree it into miso that can actually be really good. 
Uh, so it, it kind of depends on what you want to do with it. Have you seen any really bizarro ways to preserve mushrooms that were either revolting or amazing? Because you've you've traveled for mushrooming, I think quite a lot more than I have. I mean, I'm I've done stuff in Canada and the U.S. and a little bit of Mexico, but but I haven't gone to Finland or anything like that. Yeah, you know, not really. Generally speaking, most of the things I see people make are pretty traditional, and traditions are traditional for a reason. Uh, yeah, I haven't really come across anything that I that really really turned me off. Uh, uh, I'm not going to be eating tons of pickled slipper jacks, but I can appreciate some of them, especially with the cultural history around it. Those have got to be like slippery. Yes. <laughs> How do they eat them? I mean, that's just kind of gross. Uh, like straight up or put them into soup. I mean, another good thing to mention is that using pickled mushrooms, I think people assume that you just like eat them cold out of the jar or something, which can be, which can be okay. But I, I cook with them. I warm them up. Like when you warm them up, the flavor changes a little bit. Uh, you, I don't really like eating ice cold things on a lot of stuff. So I usually warm up my mushroom pickles and you know, use them as a garnish for fish, put them mm. on a steak or plop them onto a mushroom soup. I mean, those are really good ways, but warm them up uh, can kind of change the game. Mm. That's good. That's a good point. I think I've sort of done that without thinking about doing it. And uh, yeah, it's never really actually thought about that in a, in a, in a sentence before, but you're right. Um, I think the, the last method that I do with, with a lot of frequency, and this is really specifically for bolates, but it works for my friend Rosetta from, who's from Puglia. She's the one who taught me about this method is she, um, she does it with oyster mushrooms, but it's the old Italian, um, you know, salt it, boil it in vinegar, press out the extra moisture, uh, let it dry a little. So it gets kind of half dried and then preserve it under olive oil that it's like this crazy three-step process. Um, Sotolio is the Italian name for it. And it works amazingly well for, for bolites. And it's, I mean, it's my go-to method for preserving porcini and they will last no joke. If you put it in the fridge, they will last no joke for two years sitting under oil in this process. And because of the salt and because of the vinegar and because of the, the low moisture, low water content, they keep really well. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a good one. Do you do that one? Uh, I know it as conserva. Uh, so I, I do a similar one, but I don't dry, I don't dry them out. And there's, it's a, it's a hybrid pickle and soap oil. Uh, mm. So it's, there's a little bit of mushroom liquid and a little bit of oil. Very similar though. I have never had a dried mushroom that I have rehydrated tastes terrible. In other words, um, it has been my experience that even four-year-old or five-year-old dried mushrooms rehydrated and put into a dish seem fine. I've, I've never really noticed that they kind of have to be thrown out even when they're years old. And I don't know if you've noticed the same thing. I think, yeah, they're so special. Like they keep, they keep their flavor 
longer than dried herbs. I think the one distinction to make would be if you grind them into like a seasoning or a powder, and then you let that sit out at room temperature for like six months, that's not going to taste that great. So kind of like whole spices, they will keep their all their good juju and flavor uh, until you grind them up or, or use them. Uh, but yeah, they keep, it's like indefinite. Like you can save, I mean, I have some morels that are you know, years old, like many years old, and they're still perfectly fine. It's kind of amazing. I mean, you, you know, many people listening to this know that mushrooms are neither plants nor animals. They're their own thing. And, and it's kind of a cool feature. Yeah, absolutely. One tip on the um, one tip on the powders. I ha- I will make big big things of powders from the sponges, the the pores off of porcini and other bolites, because it's soft and it's kind of gushy, and when it rehydrates, it's even more gushy. So I will typically, when I process my bolites, I will take that sponge off because it peels right off, and re- dehydrate it separately you know, alongside the, the rest of the mushroom. And then I will, I will grind that into a powder. And I have found that that particular powder will keep for quite a long time in a Mason jar in in the pantry, but I will always um, stick one of those desiccant packets, one of those silica gel things on top of it. Um, And that seems to preserve the flavor for a year or more because there's, it never clumps. It's never humid. I mean, it could be a side effect of the fact that I don't live in a, in a humid place, but that method has has worked for me. Oh, yeah. I was going to mention that, too. Uh, I have another friend from Eastern Europe who she will take, you know, the pores off of every mature bolete. And I like to remove them when I dry them because, yeah, when you rehydrate them, they can get mushy. Uh, but she'll take only the pores and she saves it um, because she says, it make the gravy reach. She's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> She's not wrong. I mean, that porcini powder, the porcini powder is super, super versatile. And it's, I only make it out of a sponge because it's darker. It's more flavorful. It almost acts like a flour because it's a, I mean, it's a powder and I put it in breads. I put it in pasta. I put it, I, I'll throw it like a, a big giant spoonful into a stew. Um, I've used it with Wondera flour to make a gravy. Um, it's If you live in a porcini-rich environment like we do, uh, it is an indispensable part of my, of my cooking. And it's also one of those little secret ingredients. Now, I think mushrooms, especially preserved mushrooms, have the ability to be that secret ingredient. And I just told you about the, you know, that porcini powder shows up in everything, even though it's, if it, it may not be in a written recipe. The other one is uh, yellowfoot chanterelles in regular stock and masutake in fish stock, which I'd mentioned. Those those are kind of my three little secrets that uh, I'm now revealing on the air, but uh, they don't show up in the recipe very often, but they're kind of what make my food a little different. And I'm wondering what are some of yours? Well, uh, like specific mushrooms or? Yeah, you know, specific, like... You're going to have a bunch of dried or preserved or pickled or, or, you know, mushrooms in your larder. Are there certain preparations that you have to have because you, you know, I need this for that dish all the time? Yes. So, I mean, just a couple dried morels are like gold. 
And I, if I just put like one into a dish, I was just making a mushroom soup the other day. It got to be one of the best mushroom soups I've ever had. And I use a big blend of like all the different dried mushrooms I've gathered and only dried mushrooms because mushrooms, mushroom hunters have, they perpetually have tons of dried mushrooms. So I put only a couple morels in there and morels will quickly take over the flavor of other mushrooms. But if you put just a few, it is, ugh, they're just so good. And the luxinums I talked about for making, you know, crust for meat and, you know, black purees, uh, frozen, fresh frozen with lacoche is incredible put into like black bean soup or something that you want a dark color. Uh, like I do this one with like smoked venison shanks, hominy with lacoche and black beans with like guajillo, pureed guajillo chili. That's ridiculous. And sounds the, great. And the with lacoche in the soup, like you smell it, you taste it. It's super strong. Um, so those are two of my favorites. One thing with working with dried mushrooms that I, I try to tell people about too is sometimes people will, I mean, lobster mushrooms are a good example because they have a really mild taste. It, you know, it concentrates a little bit when they're dried, um, it concentrates a lot more when they're dried. But if you just heat up the mushrooms or just warm them up in water and then taste them, they're not going to taste very strong. Like you're not going to have that Maillard reaction like if you saute them. So I try to, you know, at least expose I try to expose dried rehydrated mushrooms to heat, you know, I'll dry them out after they're rehydrated. And then, I mean, I think I wrote this for Minnesota conservation volunteer is for example, I'll take porcini powder and I'll cook it in a little bit of butter. And then I'll deglaze that with some wine or some chicken stock. And then I'll cook the pan down until it's dry and the oil comes out. And then I continually deglaze it. And then I'm putting more color, gently coloring that, that mushroom puree and really building up that caramelization until it gets this like super like mahogany, roasty, toasty color. And then I'll take that puree and you know fold it into mushroom butter or sauces or whatever. And exposing the dried mushrooms to heat, putting a little bit of color on them, you know, that'll totally change the flavor. Like there's uh, one of my favorite things is I think it's from this book cooking above the clouds and it's like a sauteed salad of dried rehydrated mushrooms and you put a little extra color on them and they're going to taste that much better I think I have that book actually it's a it's this cool book about southern Chinese cuisine right uh, of course you have one it's a great book yeah it's it's funny because I was talking to um, a friend of mine who had written a Chinese cookbook and he had no idea like Cause he's from a different part of China and uh, he's like, ah, I've never heard of that thing. That's that must be down to like Yunnan or something like that. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> but that's, uh, yeah. Cooking above the clouds by the, you know, it's, it's now been endorsed by both of us because a it's cool. And B it's got a lot of mushroom recipes in it. Yes. Any other, any other advice tips or, or tricks with cooking with dried mushrooms or, cause I think that's, that's probably the most, I think that's probably the most common thing that like, as you mentioned, you know, all mushroom hunters have lots of dried mushrooms and including you and me and probably everybody listening to this. Um, I mean, stews, soups, for sure. Spaghetti sauce would be another uh, obvious one. Um, you know, the powders. Yeah. I think the powders, there's, there's a lot to be said for them. Like I make chili crisp 
with a whole bunch of mushroom powder in it. And, and that's really good. They, they kind of go into the background a little bit, but it's definitely there. Uh, two of my favorite preps that I think people in the, your, your hunting community will like, uh, white fishes like walleye. One of my favorite things to do with walleye is take a whole filet uh, and dredge it completely. I'll season it with salt and pepper. Wait like a couple seconds until the liquid starts to come out. Crust the entire filet in powdered lobster mushrooms or whatever mushrooms. And then I fry them up quick in a pan, but I make sure to use butter. Uh, if, you, if you crust a whole piece of meat in mushrooms and then try to sear it, all you're going to do is burn them. But it seems like something in the butter, like uh, the dairy solids or something, that make a much more gentle cooking medium. So you get the toasty golden brown and it's a lot harder to burn, but that is one of the best ways I've ever had walleye. Uh, another favorite one is venison tenderloins. Again, season with salt and pepper, let them sit for like 30 seconds, roll the entire thing in ground morels, like kind of coarsely ground morels, and you press it on there and fry it up in a little bit of butter, plenty of butter, make sure they're nice and there's plenty of fat in the pan. And those two, those are two of my favorite preps for using dried mushrooms and using using a, a larger amount of them. Interesting. So uh, a couple things on that. One, my first thought with the butter is that its smoke point is so low that when we cook with butter, we instinctively don't cook it over roaring heat like you would with, with say, you know, canola oil, because you, we all know kind of intuitively that some of these high smoke point oils, you can really kick the spurs to and butter is you're going to keep butter so that it doesn't smoke. And that's going to keep it around 350, which is probably going to keep the mushrooms from, from burning. That would be my guess. And my variation on the venison tenderloin thing is it's interesting. I don't actually, I always will just cook it with salt and only salt. And then when it comes out of the pan to rest, I will then right as it comes out, I will roll it in the, in a black pepper and porcini powder and then let it rest with that coating on it. And that kind of absorbs that coating. Um, because I'm, I'm always, I am always so worried that it's going to burn because I, I tend to not cook a venison tenderloin in butter. So that's a, that's an interesting, interesting side bit. Yeah. No, I, re I really like that one. I'm trying to think if there's another mushroom that is, out, yeah, let's just, let's talk about oyster mushrooms before we go, because that's another very common mushroom that people get. Mo oysters and hens, I think are the two really common mushrooms that we haven't really talked about on this. And I'd like to, to, to kind of finish out with, we just, what do we do with that? So oysters, oysters, I do like pickled. Um, and then hens, I don't know that I've really preserved hens cause they don't, they don't live out out West. So I usually, if I get one, um, I have a very specific thing that I want to do with it and I usually use it and then, then move on. But you get lots of both of those, I bet. Yes, I I live in a hen wonderland, which is basically payback for us not having many cauliflower mushrooms. What I what I see it as. <laughs> so with hens, I mean they're so big. One of the one of my favorite things to do is make duck cells. So for for the not chef inclined out there, very finely chopped mushrooms, and you know they can be anything else besides that, but usually like onions and garlic, yeah. Uh, shallot, thyme, and sherry is what I do. And the tricky part is 
getting them to have a really nice rich flavor because um like they're not going to be as strong as like you know a, a morel duck cell or something like that so after i'm done cooking the hens like they're all ground up i just put them in a food processor and balsam that's totally fine i cook the water out with shallots you know add fresh thyme but salt pepper and then the sherry and then i spread them out on a sheet tray and i slowly bake them until they're dried out and kind of fudgy and then that i mean you're whisking that into a sauce you're putting it into stuffings uh, I've used it to make meatloaf, meatballs. Uh, that's one of my favorite things to do with hens. That's not pickles or just eating straight up. And then you you could freeze that, right? And then that freezes like a dream. You got fat in there. It's compact. You're not going to have a lot of air. Uh, you can just freeze it in ice cube trays. That is another great thing to do. Put it into a soup. You have like instant hen bullion. Hmm, that's a great idea. What about oysters? Oysters. I really like our elm oysters and I like them pickled mostly if I dry them, I'm going to cut them into thin slices and probably use them in broth because they do get a little bit chewy. The one we have lots of different kinds of oysters out here. We have, I don't even know the different kinds, but there's, there's gray ones and brown ones and white ones. Um, But what I have done, and this is the only way that I've really enjoyed, uh, you know, not fresh oysters is I will saute them in large pieces, as you do. And when they're done, I'll souse it. So it's essentially like an escabeche where you oh, nice. they're, they're they're fully sauteed, like like you would, you know, you could eat them fresh that uh, at that point, but they're in fairly big pieces that and then I will let that cool or even just throw in a just a buttload of vinegar, either cider or or white wine or something, whatever color works and then bring that bring that up and then put that in a mason jar and so it's it's essentially like uh like um that spanish escabeche where they where it's both cooked and and then preserved and it it doesn't keep forever i mean it'll keep for a month or two but it's not um it's not really a long-term pickle but i have found that what that does is because because oyster mushrooms get kind of floppy and weird and so Cooking them down a bit in in oil, olive oil is what I use. It, that tends to tighten them up a little bit, and then they they're much more pleasant to eat out of a jar. Yeah, kind of like a I, I love you know escabeche anything. That sounds like a really good thing to make with oysters. I can see it with like a, a little julienne of sweet peppers. Um, I, I like to put that in there. That sounds really good, like marinated oysters. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, there's, you put the usual stuff in there, which is, you know, bits of carrot and thyme and, and uh, garlic clove or three and, and like uh, you know, any of the, I pretty much don't deviate a lot from the Spanish main recipe, which is, is actually done quite a lot with quail and, and partridges. Cool. Well, all right, man. How does somebody find Alan Burgo on the series of tubes we call the internet? Cause you are, you're pretty active on all over on social media, right? Uh, yeah, mostly I'm active on Instagram and then Facebook page. I'm at Forager Chef, and then my site's foragerchef.com. Uh, my show is on Apple TV. That uh, let's see, it's on Apple TV and Taste Made. And then I was just on another one this year on Hulu called Chefs versus Wild, where you can see me in the uh, in the wilderness without food, water, or shelter, 
foraging for stuff for like an iron chef competition at the end. And the thanks for passing me on to pass, passing it on to me too. Uh, <laughs> it was definitely an experience. <laughs> say for the for people out there, say the name of both your show and the show that you are on uh, one more time. Uh, so my show is called Field Forest Feast, and yeah, won won a beard award this year, and then our last year, and then Chefs versus Wild on Hulu. That one we have many stories to tell off the air on that one because it's yes. uh, apparently quite the it was quite the adventure. Definitely. All right, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, this has been super informative and fun, and we need to cook together again soon. Yeah, no, it's it, we definitely definitely should, and it's great to be on. Well, that is our show this week. I am your host, Hank Shaw. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. Alan was great as always, and you can find him on all of the channels on the internet and on Hulu and also on Apple TV. As for me, you can find me on Instagram. I am at HuntGatherCook. You can find me on Facebook where I run a group called Hunt Gather Cook. And as usual, my website is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, and that is located at huntgathercook.com. Thanks a lot for your support. Hope you guys are doing something fun and interesting out there in the wild this week, and I will talk to you soon. Take it easy. <laughs>